0: Welcome to Radio Lifestyle, and today we have a very special guest who's going to be talking to us about addictions. His name is Dr. Robert Lefevre. Now, Dr. Robert is regarded as the pioneer of addiction treatment methods and rehab centers in the UK, and for the last 26 years, he's worked with over 5,000 patients suffering from stress, depression, and various other addictive behaviors, and he's also worked with well-known names, celebrity names, including Dixon Wright from the BBC, and also David Yelland, who is the ex-editor of the Sun. So, thank you very much for joining us on Radio Lifestyle. Thank you. How are you, Dr. Robert? In
1: great shape. Thank you.
0: Fantastic. Now, um, I'm sure you're aware that um, we all have our own different interpretations, our own different meanings of what the word addiction really means. So. For the sake of clarity, what what do you mean by the word, by the term addiction?
1: It's the inability to predict what will happen after you take the first use of a mood altering substance or process in any day. So in other words, people will say, well, yeah, I always get smashed uh, because that's what I intended, but... The, the, the addict is someone who says I, I don't know whether um, you know, I'm going to go off into a binge or whether I can just have two and put it down or whether I'm going to wake up in the street or in someone else's bed or in prison or I just don't know.
0: Okay and um, there are many there are various types of addictions from drug to alcohol um, to gambling and, and workaholism what is the most common um, type of addiction that you've worked with? Nicotine addiction Nicotine, so tobacco, smoking.
1: Yeah, it's the one that people don't want to look at. Um, They don't mind looking at alcohol consumption after a time if it's causing a lot of damage. They don't mind looking at drugs because they'd like to keep their cannabis, but they don't mind giving up the the heroin or the cocaine if they have to. Um, They don't really want to look at sugar and white flour as the basic underlying addictive substances and eating disorders. But nobody wants to look at nicotine. They just call it cigarette smoking. They don't call it nicotine addiction, which is what it is.
0: And why do people develop addictions to to smoking? I mean, if that's the most common one that people come to see you for.
1: I think there are three causes of addiction. The first is what I call the antecedent, the underlying cause. That, I think, is genetic. Some of us just have a genetic predisposition towards having an addicted nature. People talk about an addicted personality. I don't think there's any such thing. Um, We all have our own personalities, but some of us have an addicted nature. It runs in families. And if you look at my family, for example, my mother's mother uh, was alcoholic. That killed her. And my father's father was alcoholic as well. My mother was spherical. She was 5 foot 2 and 15 stone. Um, I've, I'm an addict myself. I've handed it on to, to some of my children mm-hmm. and and so on. So it, it runs in families. Um, so that's the antecedent cause. The next one is trauma. Something wakes up the need for mood alteration. There's some form of abuse or abandonment or some traumatic episode that says, hey, I've I've got to to change the way I feel. I've I've got to, I've got to, I've got to. And then the third is exposure. Now that is, you know, we we, we use whatever's available. Um, I'm afraid it's rather sad, really. Um, I've never used cocaine. (laughs) There's a very good reason for that. I'm too old. <laughs> that, that's what's sad about it. It just wasn't around in my childhood. In my children's generation, it was all over the place, and, and certainly now it is as well. But yes. In, in my generation, I, I had no choice. I, I couldn't kind of get blasted on cocaine or heroin or anything like that. It just wasn't there. So we went into, into alcohol or nicotine or gambling or the things that were available. Now, then, if you want treatment, you have to do those three things in reverse. Um, if you really want to have an addiction problem, you want to get it nailed, you've got to be abstinent. You, you can't afford just to try to drink sensibly. That doesn't work for those of us who've got an addictive nature. So you've got to start with being abstinent from anything that you're hooked on. And I'm sorry, that does include alcohol and it does include cannabis.
0: So you mentioned that you had an addiction problem yourself. Yes. Could you tell us more about that?
1: Well, I didn't see it. Everybody else saw it, but I didn't. Um, I was 47 when my wife was sitting in front of a divorce lawyer and I went straight round to our doctor and I said, well, what's the matter with Meg? And he said, no, it's, it's not Meg, Robert, it's you. Well, you could have fooled me. You know, I, I still had a full-time job as a GP. I paid the mortgage. I, you know, looked after the children. I didn't beat them or whatever, you know, and um, I, I couldn't see what was the matter. And um, I thought, you know, because I was married, then everything was fine. Mm. Well, it was for me, but it wasn't for Meg. And so she just got fairly fed up with my craziness. You know, I'd go off on one madcap scheme after another. And she said, everything you do in your life always involves me in more work. And that's true. Um, you know, I took her for granted, and that's not acceptable. Uh, but also, I did lots of other very stupid things. I, mean, I bought a farm and became a, an expert in early weaning systems of pigs. And I'm a GP. Then, said <laughs> You know, I stood for Parliament. Well, people do, and it's, a, it's um, a full-time profession, but I was doing it sort of part-time, just trying to be the great wonderful Robert, which I'm not. I was still singing professionally. I, you know, I was that I'm born and I, I sang as well. As, well, that that was fun, but again, I was doing too much of it. I, did I want to be a real dancer or did I want to fiddle about in all sorts of other people's work? Mm-hmm. So I did a lot of addictive things and my eating disorder was the thing that everybody else knew but i didn't my weight used to change by 50 pounds up and down every year
0: my gosh was always
1: on a diet and the most i've ever lost um was two stone in three weeks and the most i've ever binged you know sometimes i'd sit down at the table and, and wouldn't get out for about three hours you know, I'd eat whatever was was there for my supper, then I'd go into the fridge and I'd eat the leftovers from previous days, even if it had icicles on it. Then I'd have a peanut butter sandwich, Then I'd, and, and so on and so on. And so on. You yeah. know, I just couldn't stop once I'd started.
0: That is definitely very successive. So you, you, did you say you put on two stone in three weeks?
1: I took off two stone in three weeks. I just starved myself and exercised myself silly. And I came back and said to my secretary, ta-da! And she said, you're ill. Well, I didn't see it that way. I thought it was wonderful. And you know, I used to smoke 30 cigarettes a day when I was looking after patients on the heart ward. Now, if that isn't absolutely plumb crazy, I don't know what is.
0: So, how did you overcome? Are you completely cured from your addiction? How have you helped yourself?
1: I think the only thing that ever helps an addict is pain. So, while, you know, other people are bailing me out from my problems, they're covering up my messes, they're covering up the times that I failed to do this, that or the other. They're helping me with my financial situation or whatever. They're not actually helping me. Now they're getting me out of legal problems. And that's not helpful because the only thing that's going to make me change is pain when I say, oh, I can't go on with this. I really can't go on with this. Then I can be helped because I'm listening. Prior to that, I've had all sorts of rationalizations, excuses, you know, reasons why it's perfectly okay. I, I'm not an that. I, you know, I just didn't see it with pain. Yep, I had to see it.
0: And do you feel that you are? Do you, would you classify yourself as somebody who has who's completely cured, or uh, would you say you're still working on on that in yourself?
1: It's it's a, it's a continuing thing. Um, I haven't used any addictive substance or process for 28 years uh, and that doesn't mean I'm not an addict anymore, I've still got the genetic predisposition, same as I'm still allergic to dust. Now for my short sight, I had an operation on both my eyes to take out my cataracts and put in plastic lenses. Wonderful, That I'm cured, in so far as I'll never have to wear specs. But there's no such thing that you can do for an addiction. You know, doctors imagine that putting people on methadone cures their addiction. It doesn't. More people die on methadone than die on heroin. Hmm. It's a very dangerous drug indeed. They reckon giving people antidepressants is going to help them. It doesn't. Antidepressants are major addictive drugs to people who have an addictive nature. They're not addictive to everybody. The same as alcohol isn't addictive to everybody. Lots of people drink alcohol, but that doesn't mean they're alcoholic.
0: Absolutely. People like me
1: cannot afford to have antidepressants. They they are major addictive drugs and they cause
0: a lot of damage. I think I think you're right. There certainly seems to be um, a common trend um, amongst people with with very casual drugs like things like neurofen, painkillers, as well as antidepressants. Because I think it's because, and I, I'll get your opinion on that in a second. But because I think they're so easily available that it's so easy for people to be hooked onto it. What's your thoughts on
1: that? Well, as far as the addictive prescription drugs are concerned, um, doctors are trained as I was myself. you know I had excellent training at Cambridge University in the Middlesex Hospital. We're trained to prescribe. In six years of university, I had not one lesson on counseling and I'm a GP. It's, it's, it's <laughs> extraordinary not one lesson and I had not one lesson on addiction. I was told, you know, this is liver disease caused by alcohol consumption. This is what happens when you take a heroin overdose. I was taught all the medical side of it. But nobody ever taught me what, what addiction really is or what I could do to help people. Now, I think this is important because if there are any medical people listening, uh, they might know that to see one case of Crohn's disease, which is inflammatory disease of the bowel,
0: mm-hmm. you have
1: to be in general practice for six years to see one case of a pheochromocytoma, which is a tumor on the adrenal gland, you have to be in general practice for 200 years. Oh, my gosh. But every, every GP with an average list of 2,300 patients will have over 200 people with addiction problems, and they just don't see it. I asked the senior partner of a group practice of 11,000 patients recently, how many, how many people with alcohol problems do you reckon you've got? And he said, well, we've certainly got two. In 11,000, at at 10 to 15%, and you can work that out, it's something like 1,500 or more patients that he's got in his practice that he simply hasn't seen or in the group practice. Because we don't, doctors are not trained to do that. We're trained to prescribe. We're trained to prescribe. We're trained to prescribe. What's the solution to this problem? Another drug. Now, this isn't just the pharmaceutical industry pushing it. It's also we doctors thinking, well, what else could I do? It's what I'm trained to do. It's what I've got to do. I've got to help my patients. And what I'm saying, well, is it really help? Is it really the best thing to do? Now, what happened to me was a patient of mine um, said, I'd like to find out, Robert, if uh, this drug is mood-altering. And I said, what do you mean, uh, mood-altering? She said, well, I'm I'm a recovering heroin addict. I said, What? You can't possibly be. I know your father. We were at university together. Well, I am. I said, Well, what does recovering mean? He said, Well, I don't do it now. I go to Narcotics Anonymous. I said, What's that? Do you hold hands on leave Waterloo Bridge or something? <laughs> and she said, Oh, very funny. But have you ever been to a meeting of Narcotics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous or Overages Anonymous? Any of those? I said, Well, no. no do you think I should? And she said, well, I think you might benefit as part of your education to go and see what actually happens. And so I did. I went to the Red Cross Center in, in Fulham and to a meeting of Narcotics Anonymous, and the first thing was I bumped into three patients of mine. Oh my and they said, hello, Robert. And I said, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 not me. Um, I'm, I'm just here to find out. And they said, oh. But I said, but, but hang on a minute. Why didn't you tell me that you had a problem? And they said, oh, come on, Robert. You're a doctor.
0: So the point really is is that as, as ad- people who had addictions, they had gone to see doctors and the doctors really couldn't help them. So then they had to seek other help.
1: I'm not actually blaming the doctors at all. I mean, we, can do, we can only do what we, we are trained to do. For example, I don't speak Russian. I'm not going to be blamed for not speaking Russian. I've never been taught it. I suppose I could speak Russian if I really wanted to. But the point is that doctors are not trained to counsel. They're not trained about addiction. They're trained to prescribe. And therefore, what they perfectly, understandably do is to prescribe. So what I think is, is wrong is medical education.
0: Hmm. I
1: think that's where we got to start. I'm, I'm not blaming my professional colleagues. Uh, they have a difficult enough job without having me on their backs.
0: <laughs> okay. So in terms of addictions versus normality, um, there seems to be some sort of fine line between having a passion for something and then being classified and putting that category of being addicted to something. So I'll give you an example. Um, For example, I really enjoy going shopping, for example, and from time to time I like having a little bit of retail therapy. Now, does that mean that I'm addicted or is that perfectly normal?
1: Have a look at my website and you'll see the ways in which we can diagnose on specific addictive characteristics. For example, an an addict, I'll use alcohol as an example. Um, Someone who's got an alcohol problem will always have it on his mind, either to give it up or maybe to use sensibility. It's always been a preoccupation. Secondly, he'll be perfectly happy drinking on his own. Third, he'll use it as a medicine, to use it as a tranquilizer or as a sleeping tablet. Fourth, he'll use it primarily for its mood-altering effect. My wife used to drink for the taste. I've got no idea what that's about. I drink for the taste. I drink for the Yeah. Fifth, you protect the supply. This is the alcohol money that is ring-fenced. Over here is the, the money for the mortgage, the money for the, the um, holiday money, and so on. All that's negotiable. Number six, and this is the one I mentioned earlier, the inability to predict what's going to happen after you first start in any day. Seven, having a higher capacity than other people. I remember my son saying, Dad, I had, had 16 pints and, and 10 shorts, and I still wasn't drunk, and that proves I'm not alcoholic. <laughs> I said, I'm sorry, Rob, it means you are, you're one of us. Um, they have higher capacity. Number eight, continuing without damage, or without a, 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 a stopping, sorry, I have said that wrong, continuing without awareness of the damage. We just don't see it. And if we do see it, well, we still don't really attach it. The chap who's lost his wife, lost his job, lost his driving license, he doesn't blame the alcohol. He goes to the pub for comfort. Mm. Um, number 10 the, the, the cross-addicting into other things you know you come out of the alcohol you go into the nicotine you come out of the nicotine you go into the sugar and so on uh, sorry that was number 9 number 10 is continuing despite the repeated serious concern of other people you know lots of people express their concerns to me I just thought they were wrong and then there are two more uh, drug-seeking behavior you won't get out of bed but if somebody tells you this is high-class weed you'll get that you'll get out of bed <laughs> and you'll run towards it and finally, the, the um, drug-dependent behavior. You know, you you can't start the day until you've had your shot or fix mm. it is that mm-hmm. doesn't mean to say that you can you diagnose simply on somebody who drinks or uses in the mornings that's not true um, a lot of clergymen um, you know, serve Holy Communion the first thing in the morning a lot of night shift workers will have a drink before they go to bed in the morning so to have a drink in the morning that doesn't do it and to drink spirits rather than alcohol or, or wine uh, sorry beer or wine that doesn't do it either it's why we use these various things, why, 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 not what or when or which or how much. That's irrelevant.
0: So in terms of the, the big why factor as to why people do it, would you say that a major factor is to deal with emotions?
1: Well, yes, um, but there are a quite many people who find other ways of dealing with their emotions as, as I do now. For example, my wife Pat and I, my wife Meg died three years ago and I'm married to Pat. And we have a most wonderful time going to one opera after another. Now, that's mood altering. We went to the um, Curzon in Kings Road to see the um, Live in the Met HD series transmitted from the um, Metropolitan Opera House, New York. We saw Parsifal, the Wagner opera. Now, we were in there from 5 o'clock in the evening until just after 11, we were in there six hours. Well, other people would say, my God. But Mm -hmm. I would say... If that isn't heaven, I don't know what is. <laughs> so, in other words, I have my own way of, you know, being happy and, and looking yeah. after myself, and my relationship with that is divine. Mm. So, you know, that's what really matters to me: is my values, my behaviour, and my relationships. That's what I have to look at. Absolutely, in the active course of my addiction that they all over the place.
0: Absolutely, and 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 Dr. Robert. This will be something that you're probably very well aware of. But interestingly, nowadays, there seems to be this modern trend, especially among among the younger generation um, of addictions, which include technology addictions. So I'm talking about things like Facebook, mobile phones, computer games. There seems to be this trend of addictions to this technology phase that people are going through. What are your thoughts
1: on this? Well, it's actually all part of workaholism. Work includes hobbies and interests and cults and sects. And again, people who use work to change the way they feel or use some passionate interest to change the way they feel. And um, that can be an addictive tendency. But we shouldn't think, uh, uh, you know, confuse that with just doing something you enjoy.
0: I mean, but what's worrying is that you're getting very, very young children being addicted to computer games at mobile phones. And when I say young, I'm talking about five years, five years old. Children are being exposed to, well, I mean, that's a whole different debate as to whether they should be exposed or not. But these days, whether we like it or not, there seems to be this trend where children at five years and onwards are actually addicted to mobile phones and Facebook and, and computer games and Nintendo and all this kind of thing, exactly. isn't it worrying? I mean, is it worrying? Should parents be concerned?
1: Yeah, they should. Um, they should be worried about that, and they, we should you know, do whatever we can to get people to understand the nature of addiction and how damaging it can be. But the very people to whom it's most damaging are the ones who least want to look at it. Uh, and this is the problem, you get problem families. Really what we need to do, instead of sort of putting cigarettes in plain packets and, and you know, putting up the price of alcohol, we, we need to identify those people who have the most likely probability of becoming an addict in, in, in adult life. Now, the Scandinavians did some very good research on this, on adoption. They looked at what happened 20 years down the line after children were adopted in the first week of life, to know was they had actually no environmental influence apart from just the birth process itself and what they found was that the the chances of somebody developing an alcohol problem were 60% in the same-sex parent that's the sons of alcoholic fathers and the daughters of alcoholic mothers and it went with the genetics not with the environment in which they were brought up and the opposite sex parents the sons of alcoholic mothers the daughters of alcoholic fathers it's 40% and if both of your parents are addicted it's 80% but it's still not 100% which is interesting it's not you know genetics is, is not an absolute hard and fast rule, there are also environmental influences, there are also lots of other things. But unless we look at the genetic influence, we're never going to be able to tackle this type of problem. Some people, like me, I am an addict. My name is Robert, and I am an addict. And I said that at (laughs) half past seven this morning at a meeting where I was around lots of other people who also said, my name is whatever, and I'm an addict. And that helps us to learn from each other and to support each other.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, you've you've been on a very interesting journey, um, Dr. Robert. You now have your latest book out, which is called um, Notes of a Private Doctor. And in your book, you talk about three main areas, you know, betrayal, crisis, and bereavement. And these are all emotions, situations that most of us can relate to. Well,
1: things that all of us go through. Absolutely. And when we look at betrayal, for example, which is the first section of my book, I think we all betray, and we're all betrayed, and it's you know, important, I think, just to come to terms with it. You know, I think that my um, my school betrayed me uh, by, you know, not allowing me to, to study music. And um, when I asked the headmaster, he said, "No, um, music is for homosexuals, and we don't have any homosexuals in this school." <laughs> <It's> bizarre! <laughs> the man's nuts. But um, I think I've also betrayed the school. Uh, there were plenty of things I could have done that I'd have made much better use of my time Whereas I was so resentful over that one issue that I let it damage everything else I was doing. So, you know And um, people who have uh, betrayed me. I'm the accountant who stole from me and ultimately led to my bankruptcy Which is not the sort of thing you want to happen at the age of 72 mm. to living in an old people's home It's yes, not good news at all. Yes, she betrayed me but when I look at, did I betray my children? Did I work too hard? Did I spend too much time away from home on my grand schemes? Well, I think I did. I mean, you'll have to ask them, but I think I did in, in this respect. A lot of professional people do um, neglect their children while they're building their businesses and creating the security and providing the income. But And so it's a difficult situation. But hmm. do I think I've betrayed? Yes, I did. Then the second part of the book is crisis. Well, that was really the story of the impending bankruptcy and then ultimately bankrupt. Um, I lost my home, I lost my cottage in the country, I lost my job, I lost my friendships. Um, You know, people are not desperately interested in somebody who's not able to provide anything. You know, I lost my medical practice, I lost my pension, I lost my insurance, I lost, you you name it, I lost it. Mm. And I say, I, well, my wife was right beside me, Meg was right beside me in all of that. And so she lost it all too. Now, it isn't that she had no responsibility for, for you know, her own self, looking after herself, but really I'm so dominant, I'm, I'm so, you know, I can talk behind legs off a donkey. And, mm. you know, I really did betray Meg over that, not really caring primarily for her, I was looking after my staff, I was looking after my ideas, I was generating this, that, and the other, creating wonderful places and ideas and so on, but not looking after my wife, and, and I'm ashamed of that. And, mm-hmm. and the crisis that brought me down obviously also brought her down. Anyway, then, three weeks after I came out of bankruptcy, my wife died. Bang, just like that. Um, you know, She had a stroke, um, an artery in her brain popped, and her skull filled up the blood and, and she died. And that was not an easy time. You know, I'd already lost everything that I've described.
0: I can imagine. Wife,
1: and we were married for 48 and a half years. So how'd you come through that? You know, there I was living in an old people's home, 70 miles outside London. I, mean, I lost my culture. I'm a South Kentington animal. You know, I've lived here and worked here for 45 years. Well, here I am back again. Um I, we come through, I think, with our values that 's what helps us it isn 't just being as fortunate as i 've been to marry again and to find somebody who's you know, just happened to be with um, i was I was already on the way to really looking after myself again, despite really terrible times. You know, I lost a stone and a half in weight um, not because i wasn 't eating, I was eating well, but i was I was trembling the whole time. I lost, um, I got frozen shoulder, I got pain in the back, I collapsed a vertebrae um, from osteoporosis, I, my blood pressure went up, my pulse rate became irregular. You know, all these things are stress symptoms, and I certainly had all of those, and it makes me very understanding of other people who have that type of
0: symptom. Yeah, I mean, I, think, I think the three areas um, that are in your book, and it's a very, very interesting story that you have, um, We can all relate to it, absolutely. So if any of our listeners are interested to um, get a copy of that book or find out more, um, then log on to www.notsofaprivatedoctor.com. And if you're interested to find out more information about Dr. Robert or indeed want to contact him to discuss any addiction issues, whether that's for yourself or for somebody that you know, then you can contact him through his website on wwwdoctor robert. And his book, Notes of a Private Doctor, is now available from Amazon. Thank you very much uh, for your time, Dr. Robert, today.